it says, when he had gone out, and it's talking about Jesus, Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one for another. And so that's our text for today. And so we're returning to our journey through John. And really we're looking at Judas has just left. Jesus has just washed the feet of his disciples. And he gives them a new commandment. And he spends a, two verses talking about him being glorified, God being glorified. And then he says, where I'm going, you can't come. And then he says, here's a new commandment. And that new commandment is to love. So today, the, the topic of the sermon, the thrust of the sermon is love. And I mean, and, and we've got to look at biblical love, not just love as you and I tend to think of it in this world, because we have to clarify there is absolutely a difference in worldly and, secularly, and secular love and biblical love. There is a vast eternal chasm between them. But I can remember growing up, and even in elementary, I would use that word love, right? Even in elementary, I, I, thought, that, I thought that I knew what love was. And in high school, we thought we knew what love was. And in college, we thought we knew what love was. And we've even taken this powerful emotion and we affix it to food because I can tell you, I love cheeseburgers, right? I love cheeseburgers. I love pizza. I love Oreos. I love, I, I, and we say the same word that, that is such a powerful attraction to a spouse or a significant other or to a savior. And we use that exact same word to talk about food and weather because the word love has such a vast meaning in our society. What we need as Christians is to understand biblical love. Biblical love that should be exemplified in the church is vastly, eternally different than worldly love. And it's all encapsulated in these verses right here, and it's all proven in the gospel. And so we're going to kind of break down this verse today because we want to understand what God expects of us. But y'all, biblical love is a standard by which you and I will be judged. It is the mark and the fruit of a true Christian, and it is not preferential. God did not save us because of his great preference. God saved us because of his great love. And you and I are not to live by our preferences toward one another, but by our love. And our church should be defined by its love and not our preferences. So we're going to look at John 13, 31 through 35. And keep this in mind what Jared Wilson He's a theologian. He said, loving others isn't all about us at all. And until that sinks in, we'll never be able to love the way that Christ truly loved. My heart for us today is that we read the word, the word indwells us, and we love as Christ has loved us. All right, Cross Life, here we go. From this text, I have three observations that we've got to consider. One is we have to look at Jesus' word of the use, or use of the word glorify. And we have to look at Jesus' command to his disciples. And we have to look at the nature of Christian love. So that's kind of our paradigm. That's our framework for today. But the overarching message of this entire passage is that Christians have been told directly from Jesus the trait by which all men and all women and every tribe and every people and every tongue, this is the one trait 
that everyone will know that we are indeed followers of Christ if we love one another. So here we go. What did Jesus mean when he spoke of glory? Because look at John 13, 31 through 32. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. I mean, we can't get away that the first two verses, glory and glorify, is mentioned five different times. And the original word for that is doxago. I know, your brain just went, that's amazing. I mean, you needed to know that little nugget right there of doxago, didn't you? I mean, that changes everything. But it really does help us, all joking aside. The original word means exalted, and it can also mean magnify. So whenever he's saying glorify and glorified over and over again, he is saying, now is Jesus exalted. Now is God magnified. And so we're going we're gonna to start looking into that. Jesus is connecting, though, his glory to his death. That's what's going on right here. He refers, himself, refers to himself as the Son of Man. And that term, I believe, is used about 12 times in the book of John. And each time it's used, it's used in connection with his death. So imagine that. Verse 31, Judas has gone out and Jesus says, Now's the time that I'm exalted. Jesus' glory is, and the glory of God is always connected to his death. John 12, 23 shows it in this way too. Jesus said to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And in those verses too, Jesus is connecting His glory and His glorification to His death. Jesus' death and His glory cannot ever be separated for us. For at the heart of Jesus' glory is His sacrificial atoning death on the cross. His death is the glorifying moment of God because in it is the perfect righteousness of God and is being upheld by the one obedient son who would die for the many disobedient sons. Somehow in this mystery that we cannot wrap our heads around in the wisdom of God, the one righteous son would die for the many disobedient sons and this would glorify God. And Revelation 5 even shows us the centrality of this even more. In Revelation 5, as you read it, you will see that John says that amidst the cosmic silence of heaven, because, quote, no one was worthy to open the scroll, that in this silence suddenly there was, listen to this, quote, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. There is the lamb in heaven. When no one else is found worthy, there is a lamb standing, but not just standing immaculate and white and bold and strong, but standing in the presence of God, about to approach the throne of God, and he's standing as though he had been slain. The death of Christ is the glorification and the exaltation and the magnification of Christ. So we as Christians... As we talk about his death, we talk about his glory. This should not be something, whenever we talk about his cross and his death, this should not ever be a moment of defeat for us or a moment of weakness. This is a moment of glory for us. Good Friday is Good Friday because he is exalted in that moment. My death on the cross will not cause you to exalt me. 
My death on the cross will not magnify who I am, but whenever the perfect Son of God dies on the cross and He brings many sons and He ransoms many sons and daughters and He brings them eternally home and He says to the Father, I've upheld every single standard that you have for holiness and I'm bringing them with me, then He is highly exalted. So whenever in verse 31 and 32, it says, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus then said to them, because Judas is going out to betray him, now is the Son of Man glorified. He's saying, now I'm about to die and I'm going to glorify my Father. My Father will be glorified. If we want to put in doxago now. Are y'all with me? Everybody good? If we want to put in doxago, which means exalted and magnified. And we put it into where it says the word glorify or glorified. It would sound something like this. Now I, Jesus, now I am exalted because I'm about to die according to the Father's plan. And God is magnified in me. And if God is exalted in me, God will also magnify me in himself and he will exalt me at once. Y'all, death so near and yet so highly exalted is he. It is because of his death that he is exalted. As we move into the rest of the text, I wanna, I wanna draw your attention to how his glory and his acceptance of glory gives a new way to this commandment. Because Jesus is about to die, and as he's dying, his final words have utmost importance to us. Whenever famous people are about to die, and we've talked about this in another sermon, whenever famous or prolific people are about to die, people lean close to hear his words or her words. We can find books on shelves of famous last words. You can Google it. You can find plenty of internet sites about what people said in their final moments. So here is the Savior, and in his final moments, he says this, now I'm about to die. And I give you one more commandment, to love as I have loved. I want you, before we move on to point two, listen to Philippians 2, 4 through 11. Because in Jesus' death, he humbles himself. He even says in the garden, don't you know that I could call down myriads of angels? He's saying, don't you know that I could stop all of this? But then he goes. So listen to Philippians 2, 4 through 11. And hear the son's love for the father. And then hear the son's love for us in his death. And then hear the father's love for his son. Philippians 2, 4 through 11. Paul writes, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Y'all, he is glorified, he is exalted, he is magnified because of his death. Our lives should be lived in response to his great sacrifice and redemption. So number two, from this text of 13, 31 through 35, what did Jesus command of his followers? Y'all look at verse 34. Verse 34 says, Jesus is speaking. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So in his final moments, 
I told you, final words matter. His final words were, as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. But, but here's the thing. He says that this is a new commandment. Is this really new? Because if we read the Old Testament, I'm telling you, this doesn't seem quite that new. I mean, Deuteronomy 6.5 tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our mind, and our soul. And Leviticus 19.18 tells us that we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So really, this is not that new in a, long, in a big sense. I mean, they know the language of this. But whenever he says, just as I have loved you, it took on a whole new scope for you and me. See, I can't love you as I love myself. That's not what I'm commanded to do by Jesus. That's what the Old Testament law said. The Old Testament law says, love your neighbor as yourself and love God. And there could be kind of two different ideas here. And Jesus, as God coming to earth, he came and he said, I'm going to redefine your commandments. Love one another as I have loved you. And whenever we begin to love in that way, we begin to love as authentic Christians are meant to live. Don't miss it, church. Jesus totally requalified how we are to love. I love what Thomas Stegall said. Listen to his quote. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest, the, I'm sorry, the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, and Stegall was using uh, scripture there. Now here's what he says. The first command was clear and absolute, unalterable and unchanging. But there was a loophole in the second wiggle room, if you will, because we don't always love ourselves, do we? We have those days where, where we know who we truly are and we don't always know who we are sometimes, but we don't always love ourselves. So if we don't love ourselves, then we can't love others truly like we're supposed to because if we love them like we love ourselves and we don't love ourselves, then we have every right and every, <clears throat> excuse me, every right to be able to respond to them with the same lack of love that we would have for ourselves. But Jesus says, and I'm going back to Stegald here, he says that the loophole was tightened. Jesus closed the hole. A new command I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. Now the question is, why in the world is this such an important command? Y'all look at verse 35. I mean, if this is not one that is underlined in your Bible, and not one that you have dwelt in, then this is a really, really important verse for you and me. Forget spiritual gifts. Forget, forget um, Bible plans right now. Forget how many times we've gone to the altar. Forget which church we go to. Forget how many summer camps. Forget all those things and use 35 as the litmus test because that's what it is. Verse 35, this is why Jesus is, quote, new commandment is so important because verse 35 says, by this will all people know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Y'all, how will God, I'm sorry, how will people know that we are genuine believers and followers of Christ? Verse 35 says, if we love one another. It's, it's how we love one another that will show the authenticity of your faith and my faith. All right? This is how we love blood-bought brothers and sisters who have been redeemed by Christ. He's not talking about a love for the world or a love toward the world here. And you know what? Nobody here is getting married, right? You go to a marriage, 
or to a wedding ceremony and what's one of those first verses that's going to come up and you almost know what's going to be there. It's going to start talking about 1 Corinthians and what love is. And we're going to look at that verse here in a second. But we're talking about how we love one another. As fellow believers, it's incredibly important. The world should marvel that we love so differently. The world should be amazed that whenever we are together and when we're not together, we do not hold a grudge against one another. But we do like Romans. We strive to outdo one another in showing honor. That is vastly different than the rest of the world. Not to search for my own honor, but to search and seek your own honor and to lift you up in love. I believe that that's what we see whenever the Savior sits there and washes the feet of everyone, including, including Peter who, who, who would deny him and Judas who would betray him. He just washed their feet. He just said, one of you will betray me. Judas just goes. And in his final moments, he says, love as I have loved. Yeah, he has richly loved us. And I know I'm looking at people on the screen here. I'm looking at faces who get that. But you know who doesn't always get it? The world. The world does not understand a supernatural God-given love because if they do not know God, then they cannot understand this kind of love. But we do. We have been recipients of this kind of love. So now the question then, third point is, what does this even really begin to look like? And this is a, a fairly short point, I believe. But what does Christian love really look like? Let's turn to a really popular passage and consider what it looks like. Y'all go, yeah, actually flip to 1 Corinthians 13. So you're in John, you're going to flip to your right a little bit, go to 1 Corinthians 13. And as I'm talking about love, I've already said it once, and I'm going to say it again as you see this passage. In the context of these verses, Paul is not writing to married couples. He's not writing uh, for pre-marriage counseling. He is writing to believers. And he's writing to believers um, in the previous chapters to the Corinthian church, which has had a whole lot of division. And there have been people fighting over which spiritual gift is greater than this spiritual gift and what should church services look like. And he gets onto them because they don't uphold the Lord's Supper and strive for unity. And in the midst of all of that division in the church, this is where Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. He is writing to the church, not the world. He's writing to believers, not married couples. He's writing to you and me, Cross Life. And he says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I'm going to challenge you to go back and and read the verses that lead up to that, but I'll have you do that on your own time. Because what he tells us in the context, and you can read it for yourself, is that if we have every spiritual gift, every gift of prophecy and tongue, but we don't love, then it's totally pointless. But you and I are supposed to love like this. You and I are supposed to, to, to strive for this kind of love. I want to read it one more time because I want you to actually think about what Christian love should sound like and, and look at the world's love one more time. Love is patient and kind Christians. 
It's patient and kind. Brothers and sisters in Christ, love does not envy or boast, and it is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Cross life, it is not irritable or resentful, and it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Church, it rejoices with the truth. Verse 7. May we remember that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Above all other attributes that we can exemplify, above all other fruit, love is the trait that Jesus highlights for us. He said, by this will an unbelieving world know that you are my people if you will love one another. And then Paul clarifies what love looks like. Y'all, there is a, there's a, an eternal chasm between an egocentric, self-assertive love that, that exists in the world. I love you because I prefer things to be this way that match my preferences. Therefore, I have love towards you. That is a worldly, secular love. It's a preferential love that if things meet our conditions and our ideas and our preferences, then we will extend love towards someone. There's an eternal chasm between that egocentric, self-centered love and the Christ-exalting, humble love of a Christian. We cannot profess Christ and not show this kind of love to one another. It is absolutely impossible. Matthew Henry says that any Christian who does not exemplify such sacrificial love, we should question the sincerity of his faith. So now I'm going to dig just a little bit. Y'all, it is a shame that so many Christians and Christian churches are not known by their love. We're known uh, by the music. We're known by the preacher. We're known by the messages that we preach. We're known by the building. And so that's what a church becomes known for. It's a shame that we're known for those things. And they're not all bad things. A church can be known for its missions and for its giving. And can be known for its hospitality. It says that this is the one trait that we should all have as Christians. Especially whenever we come together in fellowship. We should not be known by any other thing except for our love. And you and I are in a spiritual landscape where churches are dividing over preferences. And where brothers and sisters will come together, but they won't do so in unity. And they have to sit in different sections or different pews. And they don't want paths to cross. This is just a reality, and we know that this exists. Oftentimes, as Christians, if we're not careful, we're known for what we're against and for what bothers us than for what unites us, which, which, which should be love. No doubt, several of us have experienced the heartache of a church split, or we have seen someone who's gone through that. Or we have been close to a brother and sister in Christ and we have felt the pain of that being pulled apart. We are not called to exhibit or promote any sort of division with fellow Christians. Regardless of, right, okay, so right now we are cross-life meeting here and there are other churches that are meeting all down this road. Some are doing drive-in services, some are doing live streams. If we have been bought by the blood of Christ who humbled himself and was obedient to God and who cleanses us and welcomes us in, even when we were yet sinners, then we will show unity and love for other gospel preaching churches where believers sit. 
We are not called to be tribalistic and divided from other believers. We are known, we are to be known for our love. And the love that you and I must have cross life, if God has pulled us into fellowship, is the love that we see in 1 Corinthians. I think it's this love that we see in Acts. I love Acts 2, 42 through 45. Y'all are probably tired of me quoting this one, Cross Life, and going back to it. And you know what, now as I say that, I don't think you are because I think that we've walked this journey and this is what we desire to be said of us. Acts 2, 42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then he goes on and says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Y'all listen to verse 44. This is the devotion they had. This is the love that they had. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and then breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Y'all, may we love like that. Right? May we love like that. Like Acts 2, 42 through 45, that there is such a genuine love that we are so richly devoted to one another. Now, we can't be so richly devoted um, as we want to be to people um, who are in different congregations. They're to be devoted to one another. That's their fellowship. But we can show that unity with them. But in cross life, as God has drawn our fellowship together, may we love like that. May it be said that in cross life, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And at cross life, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds as any had need. And that day by day, we were attending the temple together and breaking bread in our homes with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. That's what should define us. It's what defined the early church and started a revolution that we sit in the, in the midst of right now. But it didn't start with the early apostles. Such great love started with our Father. And that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but God being gracious, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, He has saved us. And He has good works for you and me, is what Ephesians 2.10 says, that we should walk in them. And the greatest work that He has for His church is that we love one another in such an unloving world. Just in conclusion, there's, there's two things that are probably happening right now, and they're, they're both kind of valid. There's a positive and then there's a negative. The negative is you're likely measuring yourself up and you're probably seeing your own failure in this, which is valid. We all fail whenever we begin to look at God's holy and righteous standard, but praise the Lord that he sent us a savior. You and I will fail at this. But the mark of a saint is not one who does not sin, but one who hurts and hates their sin. You and I will fail in loving others as Christ has called us to love one another. But whenever we do it, we hate that failure. And so I would say to you that conviction is a good thing. Conviction, that, that, that feeling where we feel our failure and we want to do better. I believe that that is God's work within us. His conviction is meant to bring us to repentance. So conviction is a good thing, but more Beautiful than conviction, I think, is repentance. 
That God did not just say, I've saved you from your sins, now go walk anew. And then we sit there and we, we build up a list of all of our failures. But we can daily and minute by minute, we can go back to the Savior and we can say, God, I have failed in this and I repent. So I would say to you, if you have that negative feeling, if you, hear, you feel that weight, I would say to you, confess your sins, repent of your sins, and pray that God empowers you to love better because His Holy Spirit indwells you and will empower you and me to love in this way. And the positive, I think here's what we, what we and here's why I wanted to do Zoom, honestly. I want us to be able to see each other. And I'm just going to, as you and I Christians meet together, whether it's through Zoom or whether it's together in fellowship and even when we're apart, the confidence that we should have and that we do have as brothers and sisters in Christ is that we love like this. That's the positive. That whenever I come to you, you shouldn't have any fear or worry or suspect any division because I'm coming like this. I'm coming with a love that never ends. I'm coming that will not be prefer- I'm coming with a love that will not be preferential or will insist on my own way. That will not hold any grudge against you because I've forgiven you. I will not be arrogant or rude towards you because I as a Christian want to love like this and you as a Christian want to love like this. This is the positive. It's what brings us the unity that we actually need. That we leave our preferences at the door because Christ is our chief preference. To honor Him is what we've been called to do and to realize that all of our own preferences are ourself and we have to die to self. So the positive is that when you and I look at each other on this screen, I want you to know, cross life and believers, that I love you with this kind of love. And I'm scrolling through just to see the faces I can here and I'm, I'm thinking of those who aren't with us right now. But I love you and I want to strive to love you with this kind of love. Because this is what genuine love looks like, and it's what we've been called to. The confidence that we have is that we love like this, and we can rejoice and have joy when we come together and not angst and worry. We're not worried about potential divisions. We're worried about how the other one is truly doing. We're worried about not keeping a record of right or wrong. We're focused on his record's already been paid by Christ on the cross, and so there is peace. But I'm telling you, life will get messy. Life always gets messy. And I'm going to tell you even more. Church planting will get incredibly messy sometimes. And we've kind of decided, hey, we're going to do this thing together. But church planting gets messy because people get tired. People get exhausted. Me, I'm telling you, I get tired. I get exhausted. And my old flesh wants to creep in and your flesh wants to creep in. Church planting gets messy. And life gets messy. But Christ's love never steps away from the mess. It steps into that mess. He stepped into our mess and our darkness and he has redeemed us. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Church, and then Jesus laid down his life. May we live like that. I have one very practical bit of application for you. One is to, uh, you know, I've said you've, you've probably got two things going on. One, the positive. Focus on the positive that this is how Christians should love and that you are receiving this love for me and I, I believe I'm receiving this love for you. The other one is the negative, that we feel the conviction of our failure in that we need to own up to that. We need to confess. We need to repent. But here's my very practical bit of application that I've found over the years. 
If you truly want to increase your love for one another, pray for them. It is hard not to love someone more when you are praying for them. When you're praying for them, your heart is for them and you're bringing them to the one who is a source of love. I have found that if I want to love someone more and give myself up more for them, then I pray for them. And I'll tell you, it's even harder not to grow in your love for someone if you will pray with them. So, very practical advice. You say, hey, I I get it. But Ricky, I'm being honest. I'm looking at your face on this screen and, and I'm really struggling to love you. Pray for me. You'll love me more if you pray for me. Pray with me. You'll love me even more. Not because of the action in and of itself, but because of the one who is behind the action. God will do a redeeming work within us because this is what he desires to see in us. But if you struggle to love someone, pray for them. And if you really want to grow, then you pray with them. Y'all, may the Lord help us to love as he has loved us and to show an unbelieving world what it means to be his follower and what it means to truly love with a biblical, Christian, godly love and not a worldly love. We are not called to love as we love ourselves anymore. That's gone. We are called to love as Christ has loved us. And I have found that it is often much easier for me to love others whenever I do dwell on how much God and Christ have loved me. Whenever I realize the weight of my sin and wickedness and my failure, and then I remember that that was put on him and that he became sin who knew no sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. Whenever I really dwell more on how much of the weight of that sin, then I really do begin to love more because I remember that I have been loved so greatly. Remember the gospel. It will cultivate a God-centered love for fellow believers whom he has also saved. Y'all, thank y'all so much for for listening, for trying out Zoom. Um, We'll kind of do a debrief later and and see if we like this and and if it's effective. But um, I can tell you on my side, it did my pastor's heart good to see your faces, to hear your voices. And then I'm looking forward to catching up with those who couldn't be with us today. But I want to pray for y'all and, and then uh, then we'll be done. Lord God, um, sometimes a text that, that you give us is incredibly challenging. Lord, it's, we love those verses that tell us the promises of God. But Lord, we need those verses that show us the, the, great, the great standard of God. Lord, we live in a world where it is easy to love when we want to love And easy to die to self when we want to die to self. But Jesus, you, in laying your life down, you were glorified and God was exalted in you. And he has magnified your name. And he immediately exalted who you were and magnified you in all of heaven forever and ever and ever. Cries out, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy are you because you have lived and you have died and you were slain for our sins. Lord, help us to live a life like that. Lord, help us to grow in love toward one another as cross-life members. And Lord, but as fellow believers, wherever you send us, may we love with the love that you have and not our own. Lord God, I pray for us as we 
we sign off of here and we go into our lives and we begin to parent and, and be spouses and be friends and, and family. Lord, help us to love as you would love us to love. Praise on your son's holy name. Amen. All right, everybody. Thank you all so much um, for your time. I really enjoyed it. If you did not get to worship with the Sanderson's um, songs, um, then please try and take some time to do that. They did that as a blessing to us, and uh, uh, that was a, a huge blessing for my family, I know. And uh, So anyways, good to see you all. You know where I am. You've got my number, um, and we hope to, to unite again soon. See everybody. God bless. Bye. Bye.